Let's pray before we come to God's word. Father, we thank you that your covenant with us is eternal and you will never remove it from us. We pray that as you speak to us tonight, you would open our hearts to understand your word and that you would give us wills to obey. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. Please turn in your copies of God's word to Jeremiah chapter 5. We'll be reading the whole passage. Jeremiah chapter 5. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search your squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. Though they say, as the Lord lives, yet they swear falsely. O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth? You have struck them down, but they have felt no anguish. You have consumed them, but they refuse to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. Then I said, these are only the poor. They have no sense, for they do not know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. I will go to the great and will speak to them, for they know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. But they all alike had broken the yoke. They had burst the bonds. Therefore a lion from the forest shall strike them down. A wolf from the desert shall devastate them. A leopard is watching their cities. Everyone who goes out of them shall be torn in pieces. Because their transgressions are many, their apostasies are great. How can I pardon you Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the houses of whores. They were well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Go up through her vine rows and destroy, but make not a full end. Strip away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have been utterly treacherous to me, declares the Lord. They have spoken falsely of the Lord and have said, He will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. The prophets will become wind. The word is not in them. Thus shall it be done to them. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth of fire, and this people would, and the fire shall consume them. Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open tomb. They are almighty warriors. They shall eat up your harvest and your food. They shall eat up your sons and your daughters. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees, your fortified cities in which you trust. They shall beat down with the sword. 
But even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make a full end of you. And when your people say, why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? You shall say to them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve foreigners in a land that is not yours. Declare this in the house of Jacob, proclaim it in Judah. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as the boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that I cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God who gives us the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain, and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these away, and your sins have kept good from you. For wicked men are found among my people. They lurk like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men like a cage full of birds. Their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and rich. They have grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the, fa- the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper, and they do not defend the rights of the needy. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so, but what will you do when the end comes? Word of the Lord. After reading a weighty passage like that, I would bet that none of you goes to the book of Jeremiah when you really need a dose of comfort. I would bet a substantial amount of money that the book of Jeremiah is none of y'all's favorite book in the Bible. I'd go ahead and place that same amount of money on the bet that it doesn't even crack the top five. Why am I willing to bet that? Judgment. Jeremiah is one of the longest books in the Bible, word count wise, but 49 of its 52 chapters, roughly, are about judgment. Only chapters 31 through 33 have anything that we would call good news. Now, I'd say that judgment in itself is not too difficult for us to understand, but the judgment that we see promised in chapter 5 as well as in other places of Jeremiah's book are. Because the judgment we see here and in other places doesn't seem to have anything redemptive about it. It seems merely punitive. But, while it is true that this chapter teaches in very plain language that God is going to judge rebellious Judah and to judge them pretty severely, he isn't just announcing their impending judgment for no reason. He's not taunting them. No, this has a bigger message for Judah, and it has a bigger message for us. It's more than just judgment on unrepentant Judah. And that message was for them, and it's also for us. And that bigger message is that even when God disciplines us, when we are rebelling, 
or when he lets us experience the natural consequences of our sins, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. That God shows hints of mercy to those who don't even repent teaches us that mercy is at the very heart of who God is. Yet, in order to see those hints of mercy properly, we need to situate it in Jeremiah's chapter. So we're going to need to see that God disciplines us when we rebel. That's our first point. Let's start in verse 1. Read it again with me. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. It's pretty obvious what the Lord is looking for. He's looking for one singular righteous man in Jerusalem. So he commands Jeremiah and his buddies to go find one. I mean, it's a pretty simple assignment. I mean, it shouldn't take all that long, 15 minutes tops. I mean, this is the holy city we're talking about. For seminary, I was in youth ministry, and one of the events that we did every summer that the kids loved was the scavenger hunt. We'd go into the city, and we, we gave them a list of about 20 things to do, and they were to complete them without, within about an hour time frame. Now, these items on the scavenger hunt list were certain tasks, like dancing in public, or finding a book at the local Barnes & Noble, or taking a picture in front of the Apple Store, and all other sorts of shenanigans like that. Now, not only were there lots of tasks, but they were also weighed in the point system differently. I know, this is all very complicated. But, now, you need, you need to think with a middle schooler, you know, lots of points, limited amount of time equals stress. Because you have to make the decision of whether you want to try to do something that is a little more difficult to try to get 30 points, or you got to try some harder things, or excuse me, some easier things and just get some five points here and there, try to get more points that way. Now for Jeremiah's scavenger hunt, he has a list with one item on it, and there's no time frame. They didn't have the stress of weighing the time and points variable. Find me a righteous man, says the Lord. That is it. Now they are to take their lists and they're to go out into the streets, into the squares. They don't have to go knocking door to door with these spiritual surveys. No, they can just go up to any old Israelite in the street and look. One upright man is going to save Jerusalem from its impending destruction. Now surely Jeremiah must be thinking, this should be a piece of cake. We should be able to find one righteous man in Jerusalem among God's covenant holy people. But no, Jeremiah has an initial search and it leaves him disappointed. Look at verses 2 and 3. Jeremiah comes back to God in these verses and he reports that they're breaking the third commandment by taking God's name in vain. Verse 2. What did that look like? Well, you can imagine someone trying to borrow money, and in order to calm their potential lender's fears, they would add in something like, oh yes, of course I'll pay you back, as the Lord lives. So they were using the Lord's name for material gain. As Paul says to Timothy, these people had the form of godliness, but they denied its power. Verse 2 is about hypocrisy. 
People in Jerusalem are using their pretend spirituality to get material things. These are the kinds of people that Jeremiah is finding in Jerusalem. And so he expresses his discouragement to the Lord in verse 3. O oh Lord, do not your eyes look for truth? The answer is, yes, of course he does. But the people Jeremiah is finding are untrue. They sin, but they don't take correction. They're struck down, they don't feel anguish, they're consumed, they won't take correction. They are unrepentant. But, Jeremiah, I mean, excuse me, but discouragement is not going to win the day. Jeremiah's orders have not changed. Go find me a righteous man, the Lord said. So after that discouragement, Jeremiah renews his search. Look at verses 4 and 5. Here, Jeremiah is letting us in on a little internal dialogue with himself. Listen again as I read them. Then I said, these are only the poor. They have no sense, for they do not know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. He says, well, I've only been meeting poor people. You know, they don't have Torah scrolls. Maybe came from broken homes. They don't know God's law, so how can I expect them to be righteous and to walk in it? Love believes all things. He gives the poor the benefit of the doubt so that he can cling to the hope that he will find a righteous man. And with that slight probability of fulfilling his task still intact, he says, now I'll go to the great. They must know God's law. They must be walking in it. So he goes to the great and speaks to them, verse 5. He'll find a righteous man among them for sure. But he doesn't. Verse 5 concludes with zero righteous men in Jerusalem. Jeremiah did not complete his task, though it was seemingly an easy one. And it certainly was not for lack of effort. I mean... He tried, he worked hard, went to and fro, hither and thither, to the great and to the poor, but he came up empty. It's actually a little worse than coming up empty. There's no moral middle ground. If you don't find righteous people in a place, you find wicked people. So if I said something like, you know, I haven't found a single decent person in Fort Mill, of course, it would be an utter lie because I'm in your gracious company, but what I would be saying is everyone in Fort Mill is just a jerk. And that's what Jeremiah found. You know, Jerusalem was not filled with these morally neutral people. It was filled with wicked people. Look at verse 5, the conclusion. But they all alike had broken the yoke they had burst the bonds. This is the language of complete rebellion. As we heard in our scripture reading from Psalm 2, Psalm 2 uses that language when describing the pagan kings who set themselves up against the Lord and against his anointed. I'll read those first three verses again. Don't feel like you have to turn there, but... Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, 
let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the Israelites had become essentially indistinguishable from the nations. It's easy to look around in our world and to look at non-Christians and to see them throwing off the yoke. But here it's God's people themselves who are the ones throwing off the yoke. So in response to the people's rebellion, in response to the utter wickedness of the holy city, God announces punishment. We see this in several places throughout this chapter. We see it in verse 6, where God decrees that wild animals will ravage Jerusalem. Verses 10 through 11, where God commands the destruction of the vineyard, which is a common metaphor for Israel. And in verses 15 through 19, where Jeremiah alludes pretty strongly to Babylon coming into Jerusalem, wiping it out, and then taking the people into exile. Pretty sombering news. How does Judah respond? How does Judah respond to the fact that they are going to be disciplined? Look down at verses 12 and 13 with me. In response to God having just said in verse 10 that he is going to destroy them, that he's going to destroy the vineyard, the people in Jerusalem said, he will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us. Not only that, they also mock God's prophets. Verse 13, the prophets will become wind. The word is not in them. Thus shall it be done to them. Sword, famine, doom, and gloom. Let that happen to you, O Jeremiah. God is doing all he can in this chapter to wake the people of Judah up. He uses the vivid language of meeting wild animals and being torn apart. He gives precise predictions of what these coming invaders are going to come do. Look at 15 or 17 with me. They're going to eat up your harvest, your food, sons, daughters, flocks, herds, vines, fig trees, fortified cities. He's very specific with what's going to happen. And he also details the specific sins that they've committed. Spiritual adultery, foolishness, stubbornness, hypocrisy, injustice. I'm sure you could find more. But their ears refuse to listen. Their filters simply block out all messages of judgment. You know, when they see Jeremiah on the caller ID, they let it go to voicemail. When Jeremiah sends them an email, it's immediately marked spam. And if somehow Jeremiah gets a message of judgment across to them by whatever other means he has available, they just shake their heads in disbelief and say, not gonna happen. And this is the same thing Jesus talked about in many of his parables. Remember the one about the vineyard, how the man built the vineyard? He leased it out to tenants, and then the man goes away to the far country, but from that far country, he sends back to the vineyard. Now, those people coming back are the prophets. Those prophets ask for fruit, but what happens? They beat the prophets, they kill the prophets. Now, the man sends 
more profits to the vineyard. What do they do with those profits? They beat the profits, they kill the profits. They refused to listen to the message that the prophets had. There was no fruit in the vineyard. Now, while hopefully complete and utter rebellion does not characterize us, I think we all know that this side of the cross, we struggle with the same things that Judah did. We can act in the exact same way. This is what indwelling sin does. It tilts our hearts away from God. And if we walk on that path, we're going to be very, very far away from God. We're going to be very, very crooked. We'll become more and more rebellious. So rebellious that we're blind. So God might be letting you experience the natural consequences of your sin, but you simply fail to make the connection. You fail to see that God is hedging up your way so that you will turn back to him. You might have even crafted a theologically correct defense system. You might rightly say that you're a sinner, but you only use that so that you don't have to confess specific sins. Probably can't even think of one. You might point to the cross and say, God has already punished all of my sin on Christ. Amen. Or you rightly assert that no true believer can fall away. We should cling to that fact. That is a precious fact of our faith. Christ has promised to complete the good work that he has started in us, and he has promised that no one can snatch us out of his hand. But while we're in his hands, do you think he wants us to cherish rebellion? Should we tempt God, as the Judahites were doing, to save us without using the means of faith and repentance? Should we think that we can live in a period of rebellion and simply come out on the other side unscathed. God promises that he will discipline us if we're rebellious. And it's going to hurt. Hebrews 12:7. it will seem painful rather than pleasant. What do the consequences of sin look like? What do the results of rebellion look like? How does God discipline us? Confession of Faith, chapter 17, says this, we will come to be deprived of some measure of our graces and comforts, have our hearts hardened and our consciences wounded. We will hurt and scandalize others, and we will bring temporal judgments upon ourselves. Jeremiah 5 teaches us that God is going to discipline us if we are living in rebellion. And that discipline is going to be painful. And yet, even though God must discipline us when we are being unrepentant, when we are not believing the gospel, he tempers that discipline with mercy. There are some small slivers of hope in this passage for us. Jeremiah 5 gives us hope because those slivers tell us something about God. Shows us that in two ways. First, it reveals that though God must discipline us, he's inviting us back to himself. Just to recap so far, verses 1 through 5, the great scavenger hunt that didn't go all that great. 
Jeremiah comes up empty. Verse 6 is the announcement of punishment. But these next verses are God's reflection on having to discipline Judah. But before getting to those verses, <coughs> excuse me, think of all the things the Lord could have said after a... <coughs> better? <coughs> Not quite better. <coughs> think a little better. Okay. So before getting to those verses, I'll say again, Think of all the things the Lord could have said. He had just recounted all of their sins. He had just told them that there was no one in Jerusalem that was righteous. The whole city was wicked. He's just told them that they're unrepented. He's just told them that they're acting like Psalm 2 pagan kings. And finally, in verse 6, he's just told them that he is going to punish them. He could have very easily and justly said, it serves you right, Judah. You should have known better. He could have said, boy, have you had this coming. I'm going to enjoy this. No. Instead, he invites Judah to ponder the question, look in verse 7, how can I pardon you? How? You haven't given me anything to work with. Judah's given zero evidence that they're willing to change. And they've even said to themselves, God's prophets are lying, which is the same thing as saying that God is lying. So after detailing a few more sins in the rest of verses 7 and 8, the Lord asks again in verse 9, Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? And after recounting some more evil and some more sins in verse 29, the Lord asks the same question. Now God knows what he must do. God hates sin in a way that we will probably never fully understand. Because he is holy, he must punish sin. In Judah's case, by the way, if you didn't pay attention to chapter 5, it's, it's by no means difficult to decide. It's quite easy. Everyone knows what should happen. As Jeremiah says later, all their figs are rotten. I mean, their total hardness of heart and demonstrating that they just refuse God's word I mean, that seals the case pretty firmly shut. And yet, these questions in verses 7 and 9 reveal that even though the case is closed in terms of Judah, even though judgment is coming, even though it's going to hurt, God, for his part, is not done with them. Judah's going to be kicked out of the house. That is for sure. They are going to get exiled somewhere between 30 to 50 years after this chapter. And yet before kicking them out of the house, the Lord asks them questions. And these questions invite these guilty people to begin repentance. How? By simply acknowledging their sin. Brings them into the living room. Says, gather round. 
he spread out the coffee table with spreadsheets of their sins. Look through them. There are many, many pages. After looking through those, is there any way I can pardon you? He's just asking for a simple acknowledgement of their sins. In acknowledging that their judgment is just, they'd be on the right path. Now, with these questions, God is initiating with those who want nothing to do with them, with him. Even though he must discipline them, God wants to keep the lines of communication open, and he does that by inviting them to repent. No matter how far we've gone, the Lord initiates. The Lord is still willing to engage with us. He still invites us back. Second way we see God's mercy in this chapter is that God answers Habakkuk's famous prayer of, in wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. God does not deal with us as our sins deserve. In order to see this, let's do a brief recap of the larger context of Jeremiah. Let's go back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a book with Moses' sermons, final exhortations to Israel. And in one of the last sections of that book, he details all the blessings that would come from obeying the covenant. But he also details all of the disciplinary actions that God would take if they were disobedient. Now, the worst of these was exile. So after that, Moses died, but before that, he told them to trust in the Lord as Joshua led them into the promised land. And they did. They trusted the Lord under Joshua's leadership. They conquered a substantial portion of the promised land. But when he died, about 1350 B.C., give or take, the people worshipped idols. Now that idol worship is the book of Judges, and it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse and more idolatry. But there's a glimmer of hope, you know. Israel does fairly well under David and Solomon. But then Solomon, of course, worshipped idols, and as a result, the kingdom was divided in two, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Now, the northern kingdom of Israel was completely corrupt. They had zero good kings, so God exiled them. Now, the southern kingdom of Judah was not much better. When Jeremiah is writing, Israel is already gone, but they fail to kind of take the lesson. They fail to make the connection. Earlier in Jeremiah, chapter 311, the Lord tells Jeremiah during the reign of Josiah, who was actually one of their best kings, around 620 BC, these words, faithless Israel, the northern kingdom, has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Ouch. So it is in this larger context that Jeremiah's prophecy comes. The southern kingdom is not being disciplined for one mere generation of disobedience. We're talking six to seven hundred years here. And they're at such a low point now that there are no righteous people in Jerusalem. Even during the reign of one of their best kings. I mean, it is all too clear to anyone with eyes what should happen. Complete 
in utter annihilation. They are salt that has lost their saltiness. They're chaff that must be burned with unquenchable fire. Now the days of Judah's punishment are coming. How full and how final are those days of punishment going to be? Verse 18. But even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make a full end of you. That is a bombshell. Every theological and political pundit of the day would have said, yep, nuke. Yep, they're dead. The Lord is going to wipe them out completely. That's obvious. But it's not. God says, I will not make a full end of you. Because of their sins, we know what Judah deserved. But God, in his mercy, spares them. Now, to be sure, the mercy in this passage is not a saving mercy. It is a temporal mercy. Saving mercy only comes to those who will repent. But even though it is just merely a temporal mercy, it teaches us about God. That is mercy nonetheless. I mean, it is precisely because Judah is so hard-hearted that we can see God's mercy. Christianity includes a call to repentance, to be sure. What did Jesus say? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's first words out of the lips of our Savior. Okay? Repentance is important. Because of our sins, we must ask God for forgiveness. Yet before Christianity proclaims that message, it proclaims the message of a God who is merciful. Now we know that this is not some cheap mercy, some poof, your sins don't matter mercy. No, it's costly. The cross is the story of the one righteous man in Judah, in Jerusalem, being killed for the unrighteous. Christ willingly paid that price. He drank the cup. At its core, Christianity is a message about God, one, not destroying us, even though we deserve it, and two, offering mercy through Jesus Christ. This passage has shown us the state of God's people after about 600 to 700 years of rebellion. And when faced with their coming judgment, they doubled down. They not only refuse to repent, they mock God's prophets. Now, even though this last insult made them all the more ripe for judgment, God decided to show them a small mercy. He would not make a full end of them, as they most certainly deserved. I'll close with this. If God shows non-saving mercies, to this rebellious and unrepentant a people, how much more will he shower down an abundance of grace and mercy when you turn to him and when you repent? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to be merciful. We pray that you would forgive us for our hardness of hearts we thank you that you continue to invite us back. Receive our worship, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.